welcome back to the Social World Podcast. This is part two of my discussion with Jim Gamble. And today we're going to focus on the last nine years when Jim has started and built his company into one of the most successful and influential companies, um, developing safeguarding tools, apps, uh, consultations, as well as doing reviews and generally helping uh, the wider safeguarding community become more educated and aware, and uh, as well as appearing numerous times in various forms of media to uh, discuss things in public. So Jim, welcome back again, and let's start talking about the last nine years. We're back with Jim Gamble again, and here we are. Uh, he's just finished now with INEC after a rather acrimonious time, and people not listening to what seemed to me and many, many others at the time to be common sense. David, you said INEC. I think you meant CEOP. <laughs> there you go. I'm ahead of myself here. Um, ahead of myself and also um, looking forward to talking about INEC, which is the company you set up. So, Luke, can you tell us a little bit about that at that time? There you were, 2011. Um, stopped your work with CEOP. Um, how did you come to the conclusion of setting up INEC and of doing what you did? Is it, that had been in your mind all the time, or was this suddenly it took a while to think about it? Well, it, it took a while for me to lick my wounds after um, <laughs> my departure from CEOP. Uh, at the end of the day, I knew what I was doing when I sent in my letter of resignation. Um, but, you know, I, I was passionately committed to that work. And, and my initial response had been to give one interview, which I did, and then to then to go and, and to remain quiet. Um, and, and I did. And uh, for the first, you know, three to six months, uh, my eldest daughter was planning her wedding. That took up most of my time. But there's only so much you can do, you know, when you're driving people around from one location to another uh, as, as, as dad's taxis. So there were offers of, of, of work that came in, but I knew I didn't want to go and work for someone else. And then a former colleague of mine uh, who was at that time the immediate past president, president of the European Air and Seaports Association um, came to me and um, and we began doing, you know, some consultancy work. So working from your your study or your bedroom uh, contract uh, to to look at forensic medical provision across uh, policing in a part of England. Then uh, with the company CAE, who actually build um, flight simulators, the biggest in, in the UK, most certainly, to look at how they manage their risk assessment. And and from that, we began to to build a reasonable amount of success. So you're going back nine, 10 years. In the first year, uh, it was a hobby. You know, we we did reasonably well. At the end of that year, we had a decision to make, do we take the money, um, you know, and, and, and try and replicate this next year, or do we do something different? And those people involved in business will know that actually everybody who leaves the police <laughs> becomes a consultant. 
some of them remain a consultant for too long because in the initial period, your currency is high. But, you know, three, four or five years in, you really have, have lost touch with the reality of, of the frontline work that you once did. So we decided to use the money to invest uh, in, in an office in Belfast uh, and very quickly um, it recruited one or two staff. And we began carrying out a lot of work really around reviews. And, and the consultancy was always a short-term goal to enable us to fund the, the vision we had about creating a technical solution to putting information people needed when they needed it, where they needed it, in their pocket. You know, apps were becoming more and more, there's an app for that. So we couldn't immediately jump in to that with both feet because that took a lot of money. So in the first, you know, three to four years, we doubled our turnover every year. We increased the size of, of, of our staff and and we began to to build a stronger technical team. So Jim, safeguarding Jim, expertise. Jim, Jim, two seconds first. Tell people about the name. Let's go the INEQ, I-N-E-Q-E, right? First, I just want to know how that name came about first because we'll put links into the podcast to your company and everything. But I just, I would like people to hear how it came about. Well, in one of the early days, kind of the lessons that we'd learned um, with the, the branding company we'd worked with in Soho for CEOP was to basically kind of brainstorm these things out. The first name we came up with um, was already taken, so I'll not go into that, and, and, and therefore we couldn't use it. But as we began putting the words on the whiteboard about what we wanted to be different, we wanted it to be intelligence-led. You know, we wanted it uh, to be a unique provision. Um, and, and ultimately, we wanted it to be innovative so we could use technology. And innovative and unique became unique. And, okay. and that's how the name right. w was basically right. formed. And it's probably useful to say those two words together because it helps you pronounce the name. Now, no one is ever going to hire me as a branding expert because everybody says the name in a different way. And, and, and actually, there's a lesson for us in that as well about being focused about who you are and what you do. Because shortly afterwards, uh, we actually changed the name to our current operating uh, name, which is the Unique Safeguarding Group. Uh, which now is a, is a group of companies. Well, Inique is certainly pretty well known now, Jim. I think you know you've actually you, you've actually got it within the body of, of 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 social understanding. So I think, but we'll definitely put links in there. I'm sorry, I just wanted to ask how it came about. You were talking about the first three or four years and made a lot of reviews that you did and so forth. And maybe you want to take it up from there. So. So what we did was every year we began to reinvest in the company. We didn't take any money out of the company ours, ourselves. Uh, we just continued to, to invest uh, in the infrastructure that we had and, and build more staff. And we came to a point uh, where we were then able to, to build our first apps. One of the first commissions was the child trafficking app uh, for the 2012 Olympics, which was uh, Andy Elvin was the, the CEO um, of a child trafficking charity and through support from Comic Relief, he commissioned us and, and, and we built an app that you were able to watch the content, listen to the content or read the content and test what you'd learned. So that was about our vision of putting information people needed into their pockets so it was always accessible. Then we began to grow at a far greater pace. And you know, in the last number of years, um, we really, you know, achieved what was our ultimate vision, 
when we partnered with Zurich Municipal Insurance. And, and the clever thing about that partnership was, you know, they're an insurance company. Um, so, so for them, they're not safeguarding experts, but ultimately like everyone else, uh, and, and more than many of the big companies, they, they genuinely have, you know, an, an absolute sense of corporate social responsibility. And what they wanted to do was expose us to their portfolio of schools. So every local authority that is insured by Zurich Municipal, um, Zurich Municipal will provide our Safer Schools app to their schools for free. Uh, they get access to our resources. That was a very good, through that. good deal. Well, it's a great deal for the schools because the mm. apps are contemporary, oh, yeah. has the yeah. school calendar, you know, all of the push notifications for a school, all of the things you'd expect in school-based technology, but also the core within it of digital safeguarding material is maintained by our content and safety and learning research and development team. So we grew from being, you know, two or three people in an office to 32 full-time staff in our own building in Hollywood Exchange in Belfast. And, and they're the full-time staff. And obviously, like any consultancy beyond that, we bring in specialists. And, and as we began to grow, we began to carry out more sophisticated safeguarding reviews, uh, Brighton and Sussex University Hospital Trust, um, where we looked at a comprehensive end-to-end -end review. Of course, we carried out the independent review into Oxfam uh, Great Britain and the issues they had had abroad within their shops and, of course, uh, within their headquarters. And, and our model was always such that we would extrapolate the learning uh, from any review we did and feed it in to the courses that we were building or the work that we did. So we launched the Glimpse Inside the Mind of a Child Sex Offender series of national conferences. We brought... Which were uh, very successful, of, I might add. Yeah, extremely successful. Brought the head of behavioral analysis for the US Marshals in to talk about the polygraph. You know, we we... we exposed lots of safeguarding professionals to lots of contemporary and, and cutting-edge information. But during that time, I, I also, um, you know, was engaged with a number of safeguarding, what were then safeguarding children boards, and, and are now safeguarding children partnerships. Yeah. And, and very much through Anique, we have worked with local authorities across the country and obviously very focused on what we have done helping you know, the city and Hackney build an understanding of children's digital footprint, how you engage, uh, identifying risky behavior, how you can make that behavior safer. In Bromley, um, who actually were using the Safer Schools app, we were able to do a digital survey that reached 3,335 people, 850 of whom were parents and the rest were children. So we were able to work from a more intelligent point of view by understanding what is the digital footprint in Bromley? At what age are children getting access to technology? What experiences are they and their parents having? So you're then able to better tailor um, the responses uh, that you have with regard to identifying training needs. And, and, and that's basically how we began to grow uh, learning from serious case reviews, now practice learning reviews, and making sure that that cycle continues of taking the cutting edge training and putting it into the technology we build, whether it's risk assessment dashboards, 360 degree safeguarding reviews, um, or indeed into the apps to ensure that the content for DSLs in schools 
is absolutely up to date. I mean, if you have one of the Safer Schools apps, it's branded in, in your school's and name and colors and all of that. But every day by about 11 in the morning, you'll get a push notification to an update of all, of a synopsis of all of the safeguarding uh, news that's come out that day that may be relevant to you. Because we know how difficult it is for safeguarding professionals to really stay up to date. Uh, but I think that's one of the very good do. things, Jim. That's, that, that is one of the very good things. It's not just giving, a, giving somebody, if you like, a product. It's actually being available to follow up that product. Um, oh, I mean, look, we engage hmm. with thousands of schools. We get, you know, we've got, you know, online chat where they can engage with us. There's, there's lots. We have a series of ambassadors. We, you know, because we, we know what the problems are. So we have an editorial panel made up of people from local authority, chaired by our own in-house legal, Maureen Lewin, who was the head of legal for CEOP. So there's a theme going through there to make sure that we are testing what we're learning, making sure that it's contemporary, credible and relevant, and making sure that we're pushing it to the pockets of safeguarding professionals who have our apps. And, and that was the vision. And, and from that, during COVID, it meant that we were able to pivot to digital much more quickly. In Northern Ireland, we were able to donate uh, with the agreement of Zurich Municipal, the framework, so that their Department for Education, Northern Ireland Safer Schools app is actually the Safer Schools app we built um, for the thousands of schools we engage across England, Scotland and Wales. That was and, a and really that meant, good achievement. That was a really good achievement, that was. I mean, well, it, really well, it was hit the spot. Well, it, it was great because at a time when we knew that the, the absence of line of sight, children not being in schools, children mm -hmm. spending more time online, people using virtual engagement, we knew that there was going to be a need to feed that, you know, and to educate parents about what do you look for and what do you do if you've got a concern about your children uh, or, or young people. And, and we created the Home Hub then and the Teachers Hub where we mm -hmm. released our resources uh, for free um, so that people could, could access them and educate and empower themselves and and we continue. I mean, we've been working flat out throughout uh, the, the COVID pandemic, uh, supporting our schools, supporting other clients, uh, and indeed um, carrying out a, a, a review of, of, of a very significant uh, and, and fabulous national charity. Okay. Let me just stop you for a sec, because to, just to sort of, um, if you like, summarize it a little bit. Firstly, on the unique side of it and notice my pronunciation now note it on the unique side of it <laughs> the um the software development has been a real plus the the consultation you do the, the the safeguarding apps the home learning the teaching hubs the safer schools app all of that and you're working on new ones all the time you've got a very vibrant workforce and uh, incredibly well you only had to furlough a few of them during this whole pandemic which has been fantastic and allowed you to keep going but parallel to that you talked about the um well what were called safeguarding children boards before but now partnership boards for children i mean the city and hackney one you achieved the first outstanding um marker from um ofsted uh, that any board got, I believe, and you also chair Bromley Safeguarding Board at the same time, or the Partnership Board at the same time, and you're bringing that marriage, if you like, of unique uh, development, which is the the the, the app, into the on offer to the safeguarding boards as well. So, in a in a quick gallop, 
these two things have been the consuming partners you know for you the kind of the unique and the boards but i want to ask you a couple of bigger questions now jim if i might and the first one might seem a bit strange but if i know you correctly you'll have an answer for me what haven't you done well lots of things i mean i've always had a vision from lessons i learned actually as the chair in the city of london um, where they do some really good work that isn't very often uh, recognized simply because they're smaller. Um, and one of the things I haven't done that, that I really want to do, and we've begun this year, is looking at how we can use technology to, to help identify and locate children who go missing, mm -hmm. help identify and locate young people uh, with suicide uh, ideation or tendencies. And that came from from some of the work that the city had been doing around structural signage, about looking at hotspots. Uh, and what we have been doing is we've been looking at how we can utilize technology to push information where it's needed, when it's needed, to someone who's motivated to do something about it. And that's one of the things that, that I'm really, really keen on, on us pushing forward at pace this year, because I believe going back to you know when I talked about children um, going missing and the longer that they're missing of course the greater their, their level of vulnerability reducing the time they're out of line of sight from parents carers or safeguarding professionals simply makes them safer so so that's an area we're looking at at the minute we are we've built um you know the beginnings of our plan around that and and, and we have a, a a roadmap so that's something that that i haven't done that i absolutely want to and at some stage you know i really do want to write a book um, because I want to capture, you know, the lessons in life, the frustrations, uh, the highs and the lows in, in the different areas uh, that, that I've worked uh, and more about the area of work than about me. But, but that's one of the, the things that, that I haven't done that at some stage in the future uh, okay. I plan to do. Not that anyone will read it, but, but I certainly plan to. Well, okay. I, I mean, point taken. I think it would be brilliant when you get around if you get time to do it. I think, but I'd also like you to take you up a level as well, a little bit further. Nationally, right? Nationally, what do you think? You, there you are. You're given a blank, well, I don't know about a blank check, but you're certainly given a blank bit of paper now, okay, in terms of the whole safeguarding agenda, the whole safeguarding landscape. I have got personal views, and I've said them so many times on other programs and here and whatever, but I'd very much like to hear your thoughts. What's, what, what, what could be done now that isn't being done? And, you know, uh, how weak or strong are we? Well, we're weak in some places and strong in others. And I think uh, the early implementation of the Children's Social Work Act uh, has produced a little bit of, of a mixed bag on the one hand saying that people do whatever works in your area mm. and I think as reality hits uh, the national panel and others understandably starting to say look we need some uniformity uh, of approach here but if I had a, a blank canvas upon which to do this um, I, I think I would give safeguarding partners uh, and, and the independent chairs or scrutineers authority rather than influence because that was the problem with the old board system. You had a chair who had influence, but no authority. Mm -hmm. And that's problematic. 
I think with the current system, in theory, it looks good because you've got the police, you've got health, you've got children's social care as a minimum uh, around the top table, and you've got the heads of those sheds. But you don't have in every area education, and in the absence of education, you're, you're, you're actually configured to fail. But also those individuals are so unbelievably busy, you know, not, you know, not, not least in the COVID uh, context, but in the context of a shrinking, you know, kind of budget uh, with an increasing workload. So it's very difficult for them to come to those meetings uh, in a way that allows the type of strategic conversation to take place. So long story short, if I could change it, uh, I would use the safeguarding partnerships um, much more effectively, give authority um, to the independent chairs uh, of uh, those boards, and I would actually link their activities directly to Ofsted. And I know when I say that, people roll their eyes and people will criticize Ofsted. And I've seen Ofsted, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, But the bottom line is Ofsted are evidence-based. They triangulate what they find. They don't come and make it up as they go along, in my experience, regardless of what people say. And they've found things that we haven't done as well as we should, and we've been able to use that to improve. I think safeguarding partnerships partnerships should have an inextricable link to Ofsted, which is about continuous learning and improvement, because that would create a cycle that was much less critical and much more supportive about how we improve. So the joint area targeted inspections are a really good example of how supportive and constructive inspection can be done well, as opposed to the type of inspection that comes in and forms a judgment on the basis of a snapshot, you know, and an evidence snapshot at that time. Okay. So I think there's, there was always, there was always, and I made the recommendation at the time, uh, Alan, now Sir Alan uh, would made the report, but there should have been that link, that intelligence feed to Ofsted, where from each partnership they were seeing the trends, the themes, and the emerging patterns around safeguarding that would feed their thinking uh, collectively so that they could look at those areas where there was most likely to be a problem and help us collaborate and improve. I couldn't agree with you more, Jim. I mean, as you know, well, as you know, because we've known each other for a while, I chaired a couple of these safeguarding boards, as was called then as well, and had meetings with Alan Wood as well. And self and colleagues told him to his face time after time, but it didn't seem to percolate through or he wasn't allowed to. I'm not quite sure which one of it was. Um, but listen, that was your answer, and a fine one, if I might say, to the idea of a professional developments needed, if you like, structural developments, institutional developments. What I want to ask you is the next, and maybe final, looking at the time, big question, and that is public perception. As you probably know, and I know you're a consummate media professional yourself in terms of um, being able to get across your points, but one of my passions has always been the image of safeguarding, the image of child protection, in my case, social work, in the media, because I do believe still that 98%, if not more, of the public get their information and opinions formed from some form of media, whether it's broadcast, whether it's written, or whether it's social media. And that's where you have to be in that shop window in order to get your point across to influence the public and make them understand what the child protection safeguarding professionals are doing and why they do it, and perhaps even more to the point, what they don't do. What's your feeling about um, 
image in the media of the work that goes on in safeguarding? Well, I mean, my, my obvious answer to that is too often it's too negative. Uh, and I think that that breeds an unhelpful cycle where we become, you know, we become reluctant to engage the media. You know, the media only is only going to focus on that which has gone wrong. The media, it's not news if it's good news. It's only news if it's bad news. And there's nothing new, you know, or, or particularly clever in, in saying that. We know that's the case. What we need to do is we need to engage the media on those things that we're doing well. We need the fly on the wall documentary that sets in context that social workers, for example, are real people with real lives who put themselves, you know, in very, very difficult situations that are highly emotive. And their fundamental focus is on doing what's best for children. And you know what? I find that's lost. And even through COVID, you know, when I've gone out with my grandchildren, as I did, you know, during the Thursday night applauding, you know, I, I, I really felt at some stage that, yes, we were applauding the NHS and it was right to do that. It's right to applaud, you know, our teachers. And it's absolutely right to applaud and reward our social workers. Because when you're in the front line doing a difficult job, keeping young people safe, it's not always going to, you're not always going to get it right. And even when you do get it right, sometimes it won't look right. But ultimately, without them, we would be in an awful position. Without them, so many children would fail to be safe. They would fail to thrive. And so I think there's got to be a, a greater level of openness. You know, when things go wrong, yes, let's admit it. But ultimately, far more things go right than go wrong. You know, when I went to Bromley, which, you know, three years ago had been found inadequate, and they were found inadequate because they were three years ago. And they were inadequate, why? Because of a lack of investment, because they had too few staff dealing with too many cases. They weren't inadequate because people didn't care. But once you're found inadequate, once the investment's made, you're able to get more staff, you're able to have better systems, you're able to appoint, you know, the right leadership. And that, that makes such a huge difference. And ultimately, they moved in two years to good overall with outstanding leadership. They did that because of investment at a political level, because investment at a leadership level, and because I don't care whether you're Superman or Superwoman, you cannot manage 46 cases as an individual social worker. Mm. So ultimately, we need, to, we need to deal with these things much more effectively. And I, I have found time and time again that it's easy for, for professionals, safeguarding professionals, to stand up and criticize when it's gone wrong because that's the safe thing to do. That's the safe thing. Everybody will do that. Mm. But actually when it's gone wrong, we need more people to stand up and put in context what's gone wrong with regard to what is going right. Because I find people, when you say, well, the social workers are in work, you know, from seven to four or whatever, actually many of them go home at four and log back on again and are working on their remote VPN until yeah. late in the night to try and manage the caseloads they have. So I'm not the person to do it. There's a chief social worker there, there's others, and they are making progress. But we need to be able to articulate, you know, the story in a human sense. Let me just say this. Whenever I was in counterterrorism, I always felt that one of the best things we could have had in Northern Ireland was a program like the bill. Because when the bill was running, everyone could relate to Sergeant Bob Cryer because they just didn't see him in uniform. They saw him as a real person warts and all with the problems he had at home and the difficulties he faced in work. I think 
you know, and this will sound naive, if we saw more social workers in a positive light in that media environment that is dramatized, then we'd have a greater opportunity oh, to influence. Couldn't agree with you more, Jim. I mean, and the late Bill McKittrick, who was a close friend of mine, and he was director of yeah. social services for Bristol, allowed the BBC in to do three one-hour groundbreaking programs following child protection team around. And although it was very much warts and all, it was real and showed exactly what you said, the, the fact that social workers are real people with real lives and trying terribly hard to actually make a difference and not just making mistakes all the time. And I've always advocated the fact, and it seems to fit with what you were saying there as well, there are so many good news stories around that we all, do, we all actually succeed in, social workers succeed in, that if only that we were allowed to relax a little more and talk to the media a bit more about the good news stories, then there would be a balance in the public eye. And so tomorrow morning on the doorstep in that new case of child protection where it's all very fraught and dangerous and difficult, they would be able to get across that doorstep with a little bit more ease and get in and help that family rather than be the product of media suspicion. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, I couldn't agree with you more. And anyway, listen, but unfortunately, we could talk for hours, and I'm so pleased that you were able to, to make it. Um, Jim Gamble, thank you ever so much for being on the program. And um, I don't know if there's a final word you want to say to the listeners here and abroad, but um, go on if you do, because we've got about a minute left. Would you like to make a kind of final statement? Yeah. I, I mean, I think we all say that everybody you know, has a part to play when it comes to keeping children safe. And whilst that sounds like meaningless rhetoric, it's actually true. The key is knowing what to look for, having the courage to call it out when you see it, and knowing where to go next with it. So if you're ever in doubt, if your gut tells you something's wrong, ask the difficult question. And if you don't get the right answer, escalate it, whether to the police, whether to social care. Be the difference in a child's life by advocating by, for, and on their behalf. Okay. Jim Gamble, a pleasure as always. Thank you very much for being a guest on the programme. Well, there we are. That's the Social World podcast for this week. It's absolutely fascinating and we could have carried on talking with Jim for such a long time because he's got so much experience and so many stories and so much um, events that he's actually participated in. But, as usual, we're limited by time, and I'm really delighted that you were able to join us. Now, at the corner, uh, or the side of the text of the podcast, there's a thing called voice recognition, which is something called SpeakPipe. And all you have to do is click on it once and leave a short message, and it'll come straight to me by email. And it is there for your opinion, for your ideas, for your uh, ideas about what you've just heard, any thoughts you had about what you've just heard, but also for ideas you'd like for future podcasts. So give us a shout. I'll give you a shout out and effectively we'll work together as usual um, to make this the best podcast that we can possibly be. So thanks for that. And I look forward to hearing from you. And thanks, obviously, to Alba Digital Media, as usual, for their work on this podcast, helping the technical side. Look forward to hearing you next time, seeing you next time.
Bye-bye.